Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Do you know, right now, what keywords you're currently ranking for on your site? I'm not an SEO per se, but I did this recently and it was actually really surprising. I could see the estimated search volume, the keyword difficulty, the traffic I get from it, and where I rank in the search engine results. For example, I didn't know I was actually ranking pretty high for keywords like swipe file and what is a swipe file and Facebook ads swipe file. And here's the thing, I did it completely for free thanks to Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, a new generous offering from the team at Ahrefs that unlocks a ton of data for free for website owners. Check it out for yourself at ahrefs.com slash A-W-T. On the show today is Ramley John. Ramley is the Managing Director of Product Lead, author of the book Eureka, and host of the Growth Marketing Today podcast. I wanted to bring him on because he's an expert on product-led growth and user onboarding. He's also writing a book on user onboarding called Eureka that I've been fortunate enough to get my hands on early, and I'm super, super impressed. And he's also a fellow podcaster, podcasting for over three and a half years now. So you'll hear about the step-by-step frameworks and models for user onboarding, the different onboarding models, and how to know if you should go for a product-led approach versus a sales-led approach, and how he's managed to get big-name guests on his podcast. So to start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? No, absolutely not. I'd be like, as a Filipino Asian guy, like, (laughs) you know, like I got, you should be a doctor or you should be a nurse, right? Marketing, I was funny because I was talking to Amanda and she's also part of this wife files and a Filipino as well. Like this is not like something that you that you, that you, your mom and your Filipino mom and dad would be proud of. Like, oh, my son's a marketer, and people people are not gonna be like, ooh, go go uh, marketing. So absolutely not. Like I, I got into programming first, and I guess it's slightly more expected for a, a Filipino Asian guy to be at. But I ended up starting a startup, and it didn't work out because we did the classic mistake. We we built it and we hope people would come as a programmer. And I realized like, man, one day I want to start a startup, but like my gap in skills is marketing. So that's my route to to marketing is like just through my own desire to start something, but also through a failure that didn't work out and realization there's a gap in my skills. Wow, that's amazing. I, I knew that you had some engineering chops, but I didn't know that it was sort of your, your forte or foray into marketing was from a failed startup and because it was sort of a, a marketing distribution what what was the app like can you walk me through a little bit like what the startup was and sort of what you feel like looking back you know what you do differently yeah i mean it's weird because we started off and you're gonna laugh at this me and michael and founder were both programmers we met in business school and we were like wouldn't it be like her, his uncle just died and we we're like wouldn't it be cool if we created a face for for dead people you know, like, where people can leave comments and like you know remembrance because people were using Facebook already for remembering somebody, and at some point we were like, this is too too depressing. <laughs> Let's pivot to babies. Let's make a baby book for moms. Oh my god! So we built this digital uh, scrapbook scrapbooking tool for for moms to upload photos and pictures and they can crowdsource it from their family members. We found that families in North America that were their first kid, they would spend three to $4,000 to scrapbook their first child's first to two years. 
So we created experience. People can buy it. Uh, pe people can actually print it off. And there was just a point where like to really scale the business, we needed to go to mom to mom meetup groups. And then we looked at each other, me and Ali, and I'm like, you're not a mom. We're both single. We're not married. What are we doing in this space for yeah. babies and moms? And like, we need to hire a mom CMO. And we looked at each other and like, is this what we want to do? Like, we can do, like, do we, like, we're not, you know, people talk a lot, a lot about, like, I'm sure you've talked about like founder market or founder product fit. And it, there was definitely no founder product fit. Like we're not, we're the wrong guys in a good market. Like we found a good market. We think we can scale it up and we're just not the right founders to scale this up. So, I mean, that realization is like, we should have thought about distribution from the first place instead of working on something that's cool. Wow. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like that's, that's amazing. I never would have known that. And I'm so glad that I captured that and now have it in the audio that you went from Facebook to <laughs> Facebook for dead people to digital baby scrapbooking. And that's awesome. So how did you actually learn marketing then? Because I know eventually, I mean, now you have a podcast. Now you're sort right. of like the lead marketer. You're writing a book. You're even, I saw a professor at a college for a while teaching right. marketing. So like, how did you actually learn right. and get the marketing chops? Yeah, I would, I would read blogs. <laughs> I would read blogs and I don't, I think this is just a lesson on, on my end too. Like I would read it and then I would try it out like on my own stuff. So I started blogging. I started blogging about lean startup. Like I was sharing, I was, this is back in 2010 or something where like there was, the blogging wasn't as big. Like you can post up something on, on Reddit and it can get some traction or hacker news. So I was just, that's how I got into marketing, which is blogging uh, a lot about my experience. And then uh, somebody from, from San Francisco, I got into the lean startup like world where they invited me to speak to the conference. And then some guy was like, oh, you do well with content. Why don't you help us with content? And I was like, yeah, I like writing. <laughs> I like, I like doing this stuff. And, and I have a little bit of coding chops. So that's, that's, that's my route to like, like learning about marketing was just reading. So I don't have any professional learning experience with, with marketing it was through trial and error. Like just like, like figuring things out and looking back, I think a lot, I forgot who mentioned it. Like, I think, I think Louis Grainer from everyone hates marketers. He posted something on LinkedIn that you know, a lot of marketers should have psychology background or customer psychology. And I guess that's one thing that I, I wish I, I tried learning a little bit more because what I was like trying out was like things that interest me, which is just blogging content and, you know, like trying to figure out how to get people onto the site for free, like SEO. So that's just one thing that, that I, I wish looking back, like maybe I should have taken a course <laughs> around that piece versus just trying to wing it and trial and error. But I think that's, that's how I, going back to your, to your question, reading blogs and trial and error <laughs> was how I learned marketing. Well, I mean, learning by doing is the best education, right? So nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that at all. I went to school for marketing. I can tell you that there was it was not very uh, interesting or useful or practical. So so no hard, no foul. And eventually, I mean, it served you well because now you're the managing director of product-led. Could you talk about like what the company is, what your role is, and how you landed that? Yeah, I... Well, Wes and I, we didn't go to the school at the same time, but we we're both alumni from the same school in Canada. 
and he was just getting started with the whole product-led growth movement. He just wrote a book about it, and we just stayed in touch. And how how I got on was like he he noticed that I was teaching about marketing, and he was looking for somebody to help him out with teaching. So that's one of the things that that I helped him out with is we I teach some of their program their live programs. As well as I recently, like a year and a half ago, I, I, I got into podcasting as people listening to this. So I, I helped them launch the product-led podcast. That's one thing that I do, but I, I've really got into the great thing about like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like I, I like I like working with people who are willing to trust me to do stuff that that might not be in their radar. For example, Hmm. I, I got into video a lot, so now I'm also in charge of the YouTube videos, <laughs> and like I'm, I'm like you said, I'm I'm writing this book. So if I can summarize three things that I help product led out with, I I run their training programs, uh, their online training programs. Second, I, I try to grow their their brand brand itself through top leadership content, and third is like I'm helping build out their their marketing and and sales and and product team. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I it's it's interesting because I think like product led is such a sort of new type of business, kind of like Swipe Files, where it's like this membership slash community slash content. You know, Wes is a great author. He's written a book. You know, he, I'm sure he does a lot of speaking or did a lot of speaking both pre COVID. Probably wants to get back to that. But what is marketing a type of business like product led look like? Is it just like mostly a lot of content? Is it a little bit of like networking and sort of like the viral effects of who's involved in it? Or what does it really look like to you? Yeah, I mean, that's something that Wes and I have been talking about. What is our competitive advantage? Like, especially thinking about the community, like how does that fit in? I think there's, there's I'm, I'm going to start off with two, two core circles that, that we've been thinking about. The first is like how you draw them into your circle and through, through your community is through Taught leadership content like that could be through like you talk about speaking it could be uh, writing books it could be just speaking at other places being on podcast show just establishing yourself as quote unquote an expert but like we just chatted before we recorded this like we're st- i'm still i don't feel like an expert I'm, i still want to learn more and i'm still pushing myself forward and like establishing new ideas and putting it out there that's the first circle I think once they've drawn into that, a lot of people kind of squander that, that, that I, I don't know if squander is the right word, because once they're in, they, they're in, in your realm of influence, I think the next step is to bring them into a community. And we have this product-led community, about 6,000 or, or so product-led members there. And it, it, it's built on Slack. Unfortunately, I know we, I've been talking to him about bringing it into Circle because the, the Swifels community has been really great. Like your your community, Corey, has been like, this is such a better experience than Slack. But even in Slack, like one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how do we get members talking to each other? Like how do we, mm. everybody, whenever somebody introduces themselves, I would jump on and say, Hey man, I'm super excited to be here. Like, let me know what you need. And I try, I would try to tag people. Essentially what I've been doing in the last few months has been what you've been doing, what I've seen you've been doing as wife files. Like how do we connect people with each other so that they're not just like, they don't, don't just trust West Bush, the, the fearless leader of this product led movement, but also how do you trust this, this people within this community? And some of the, the success stories who have heard is like, I've heard, I've recently talked to somebody who found a job through one of the community members. They just started chatting with each other 
and she got a job just through the community i was like this this is this is great like i'm this one of the success metric is like conversation but as well as are people finding value and one of the metric for value uh proxy could be people getting jobs too from other members right absolutely yeah so like that's that's how the the two circles i've been thinking about marketing is like how do we magnify top leadership content and video and youtube is definitely part of that and secondly, how do we, how do I think about like growing and engaging this, this community? Because that, you know, when, when the community is, is, is responsive, like when you put out an offer, right, you put out like, Hey, we're doing this course. Like they would like, honestly, just, they would respond to it a lot better if, if they're just like listening from, from far away. So that's just a lot of the things that, that I've been thinking about is just those two, two circles. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to talk about onboarding. I want to talk about Eureka, which is the new book. When does that come out, by the way? You know, it'll it'll date this podcast a little bit, but at least we'll know if it's out yet or if it's not out yet, depending on when people are listening to it. Yeah, it's coming on May 25th. Okay, May 25th. Amazing. So just so we're, you know, talking apples and apples and not apples and oranges, like how do you define user onboarding, which is sort of like the main premise of the book. Right. Uh, what are some of like the main components of onboarding that you, that you talk about? Just kind of give us like a overall like skeleton to start imagining. Yeah, I, the way that I think about onboarding, traditionally a lot of, I guess the, well, the way people think about user onboarding is that it starts when people sign up for an app. And they, you know, the onboarding is when that point all the way to, usually what I've heard often is they when they become paying customers it's like that's it well we're done especially for product like companies where you have free trial or a free user that's onboarding just get them to pay man just it <laughs> you're done and my my one of my arguments here first of all is that it starts much earlier i think the very first touch point with with a user right away you're shaping the way that they perceive your product and what it can bring to them in terms of a value so if you if you royally mess that up <laughs> there's no way that you're going to successfully bring them on to what to, to your product i got an example that i bring up is like let's say they're going through your ads and to to your website and they think that you're that you're a video marketing agency and they sign up for it but you're actually like selling a video editing tool <laughs> like there's no way you can onboard somebody where their positioning and their messaging is already confused and incorrect right from the get-go so i argue it's from the very first touch point and my other argument is that the the initial onboarding doesn't end until that they've shown uh, some kind of interest or some kind of metric to show to you that they're actually already starting to adopt your product and what i mean by that is that when somebody pays their first invoice and this is something that appcuse found jonathan kim did an interview with first round where like they found when their their initial they had a 14 day trial and people would pay off they would they would they would end the 14 day trial and they're like oh it's only 100 bucks let me extend my trial for a month and people would be like oh you're done onboarding's done but he found that a lot of people after the first invoice ended up churning because what they're essentially doing was extending their trial <laughs> And they actually haven't had uh, com completely used the product and shown the value of the product itself. So my argument in in the book is that it actually goes to what I call a product adoption indicator, where that's when they've started using it enough times in, in terms of like a habit, 
you have to do something X number of times before it sticks. We see this often. I'm sure people who are listening in, they've heard Facebook's, you know, add 10 friends in, you know, seven friends in 10 days. But there's other apps that has done something similar to that where, you know, Slack has, Slack's idea, and this is, this is what like really stuck with me, that for a lot of people, Slack, what they think is like, well, you know, just sending the first invoice is, is sending the first message on Slack is you're done, onboarding's done. But for Stuart Butterfield and the CEO was like, it's it's actually 2,000 messages within a team. For them, that's when they've seen 93% of teams still stick with with Slack. And for me, that's that's a strong signal that somebody, a team or a company has been onboarded because they've shown to you some kind of some, some kind of indicator, an early leading indicator that they're really uh, going to stick around. So it's essentially a retention indicator, which which I was really driving to the point. So that's that's how I see onboarding in, in the book. It's like it, it starts from the beginning and it goes all the way to retention, which kind of redefines what your onboarding team is really like. For example, like often onboarding for product led is just the product team, right? And us mar- marketers, we're all like, I'm not sure if you've been like this, Corey, where like marketers are often like forgotten. Like we're like, oh, we should talk to marketers to yeah, fix our, 100%. to help us with onboarding, right? And then, and then they, they bring us in too late. Like I've, I just, I've just had this happen recently with, with a company I was working with where like, they're like, oh shoot, we should, we should talk to the marketing team about the emails, right? Or the, the copy. So like this really, like your, your positioning product marketing, your ads team has to be part of the discussion with onboarding because whatever they're saying at the, the top of the funnel will, will trickle down to what is, what's going to happen all the way to the middle, to the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely love the topic of onboarding because it's just like so ubiquitously applies across so many industries, whether it's SaaS or communities like like mine and yours, e-commerce, you know, high touch kind of services, even like onboarding is really the crux of how do we get someone who's interested in us to actually use and find value out of what it is that we provide, right? One of the things I think a lot of people will be wondering is like, what are the big challenges to improving user onboarding? Like what are the, the big obstacles you have to o- overcome, the big mistakes that people make? Like what is stopping people from from improving their user onboarding today? Yeah, I, I think it's it's just this, like we, we've touched upon it a little bit. The first thing that I see often is that it's the product team's job. <laughs> it is their job and marketing, marketing, marketers, go do your thing. Go bring us some users, customer success, you know, just connect us, connect the people, just answer their questions and sales, like just, just do demos. And I think the first mistake is thinking that it's one, it's, I, I call, I call it the, the James Bond mentality where like, it's this one hero <laughs> to do this one critical piece. Like you just talked about, this is the crux of, of really, you know, if, if you don't bring people and help them see the value, everything down funnel from referral to revenue and retention will be affected. So I really think that it needs to be more of, a, I call it a Marvel's Avengers, <laughs> where you bring in all the superpowers Love together it. from the different things. I think the first that's the first thing. I think the second thing is not having clear success metrics. I think people are so caught up with the aha moment and what is the aha moment? And they're like trying to scratch their head. Like, what, what is, how do we figure out this aha moment? But my point in the book was like, just pick the one 
product action that you believe is like people are finding like it really drives home the the people are seeing that the, what i call the what the customer job essentially jobs to be done what is that one action people need to do to accomplish their their job with your product and just you know look at your data see how many times people have to do it before they they really stick around so i think just being clear on one like activation or onboarding metric around that would be really like rally the whole team around. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, how do you know if your product has bad onboarding today? Of course, everyone, like there's always room for improvement, right? But if you were really to look and like, what are like the big red flags and things where you'd be like, oh, that's immediately an indicator to me that there's some major room for improvement here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we can just look at through the whole onboarding flow. I mean, the first thing, like when people sign up, like are people completing the sign up? That's the first thing, right? Uh, I think one of the things that, that we've seen is like this, this whole argument around like, well, I want to avoid spam. So I'm going to put two factor authentication. So what that means is people have to put in the email, they have to go to the email address, they have to click on the button and they would have to come back. I mean, that's great for removing spam, but there's other technological waste nowadays that is more advanced that you don't have to stop people like we've seen like 40 to 60 percent drop in in there like for some of the people that we work with if you don't if you don't click through and there's te technology like i'm not i'm not as in deep with this this tech field but like there's like something called the honeypot or like some kind of like some other tools that you can use to clarify that so i think that's the first step is like are people completing the sign up are they actually you know if they can't get to the product then then how are they going to experience the product itself the second thing after that is are they driving are they actually you know are they are people getting to that pro the first the that key product action that your product has to do to really experience the value. For example, I know you've been working a lot with, with Derek from Savical. I'm guessing the first clear product action that people need to do is set up the calendar and book time with somebody. So like, I think if we're looking at like uh, analyzing that onboarding, that's one thing I would look at it. Once people complete the sign up, are people actually completing that first key product action somebody needs to do to experience a customer job? And the third thing that I would suggest <clears throat> that is often overlooked is, you know, after the first invoice, are people churning? I think that's a key indicator. I, I, once again, I say say this like people paying the first invoice is not uh, indication that onboarding is done. Usually, like thirty to ninety, thirty to sixty days for SaaS is the most some of the most like imagine it's like a, a newborn baby, right? The first few years. It's like super critical. You don't want to just leave that baby there. But often, a lot of SaaS companies they would be like, oh, they pay they pay their invoice. Let's ignore like let's ignore this person. <laughs> let's ignore this new new user, this new customer. But really, like you want to really drive home. Like if do they get back to the second month? And and if they're not, maybe they're just paying for an extension, just like with AppKeys. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a huge one. I, I'm wondering what your take is. Also, I know you're going to be a little bit, a little bit biased here, but I'm also, I think you can, you can be pretty unbiased. So I'm wondering about the different onboarding models and how they differ. So you know, there's product-led growth. There's sort of a more traditional sales-led model where it's you know, you know, talk to a person, they'll walk you through everything, and there's you know, the hybrids in between. Like, could you walk me through a little bit, like, what the major onboarding models are yeah. and the thoughts behind them? Yeah, I mean, I probably would be, people would be surprised that I don't believe product-led onboarding is the best. 
<laughs> out there and we have data right people think like there's the self-serve product-led onboarding let's talk about that first which is like it's completely touchless they they educate themselves and then they sign up and they pay for the invoice and experience the the magical moment with your product without talking to anybody that's the self-serve onboarding and then there's the sales-led onboarding where like they can't get to the product at all they need somebody to talk to somebody from sales uh, from customer success to get them on to the product, to experience it, to teach them, to train them. Maybe it's complex and that's sales led. And I believe the best is, and it's usually true for a lot of things where like this versus that, usually it's the both, right? It's like, it's the hybrid model and Redpoint VC did a study and they found like, they studied a hundred or so SaaS companies and overwhelmingly sales, sales assisted onboarding has the best conversion. And also retention because like you know people some people want to talk to sales like that's that's people are product line people are shocked about that they do like i just want to get my things done and what they found was the conversion uh from free free trial to paid for hybrid is like 14 to 15 percent so and for product led uh conversion from free to paid is usually one to five percent at best wow. so so like that's that you like just adding a figure the magic is figuring out when the best moment to add the sales and like you can you can most likely see a two to three percent increase in ter- two, two to three times increase in conversion based on the data that they have like just because you know they're like i said like there are people who need the help they want the help they don't have the time like you there are busy ceos and vps who really don't have the time to educate themselves and they would love to talk to somebody uh, about it yeah i'm glad you you mentioned that because right before this or a little while before this i hopped on a uh, clubhouse or as twitter twitter spaces with you and with mark and with dev and uh, sort of my two cents was that it's you know kind of a false dichotomy like you can have your cake and eat it too. You can, you can do both well. There can be sort of, sort of that hybrid model that exists. And so, so I'm glad you mentioned that and uh, that you can be unbiased as well. So I want to dig into the Eureka framework and give people sort of like a taste and just a, a teaser for what's in the book, what's going to be in the book to really get kind of like the meat and potatoes of it so they can go and explore more if they want the book later. So where, where do you start with the framework? Like what, what's the first step to figuring out your user onboarding? Yeah, we've already started <clears throat> talking about it. Eureka is an acronym. It's it's kind of cheesy. And for those people I who like it. acronyms, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you like acronyms. I know oh, my yeah. wife, my wife Joanna was just laughing at me. It's like this this is lame. <laughs> That's what she <laughs> said. But it's just easy to remember. So the nerds first love it. <laughs> Yeah, nerds love it. Nerds unite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, f- the first one we already talked about, I think the first thing is make sure you establish an onboarding team. I think that's the first thing that I would mm. suggest. Like before getting into the emails, make sure you have, you pull in everybody. Like don't 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 wait till halfway through <laughs> the onboarding project to pull in marketing, right? So that's the first step. The second is, and and I, you know, I really thank you for thinking about this with, with marketers is like, you know, the first thing is understand understand your users and you've been doing doing this whole series for swipe files with the jobs to be done with really under, i think that's the foundation like a lot of people they 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 miss this step we, that we found is like oh let's just put up product tours man let's just get it up there i mean like 
how do you know you're doing the right product tours and driving them to the right actions? If you don't know what their desired outcome is, you don't know their functional, their social, their emotional jobs, you don't know the forces that are affecting them, their their interests and their pain points like that, that is like foundational to really improving your onboarding. So that's for me the second second one. Did you want me to keep going or do you have any questions? To yeah, yeah. Why, why, don't we, why don't you go through the, the six or seven and then we can, I'll dive into each one and we can go more in depth. Sure. Yeah. So that's the second one, understanding. And then the third one is refining your onboarding metrics. So success metric. And I that's what I talked about with the product adoption indicator, making sure that, that you have this idea of like, what does a successfully onboarded team or user look like? So I have like a five steps to figuring out something like Slack's 2,000 messages per team that they're 93% more likely to stick around. So that's the third one. Uh, the fourth one, so U-E-U-R-A, even I'm using it, right? No. Is to analyze and optimize your onboarding flow. So looking at your every step in your onboard, every field, figure out if they're necessary or not. Can you reorganize it so that the easier steps are at the beginning? Can you simplify it to, you know, whether you can do multi-step sign-up forms, like really just analyzing that onboarding flow right from the very high level. So once you have, you've analyzed and optimized that, you want to add in the, I guess, the meat and the skin. So that would be the, the what Wes calls the product bumpers, which are, you know, the, the in-app triggers like product tours and uh, in-app messages, and then also conversational tools like the emails and in-app messages there as well. And the very last thing is to analyze it and to to repeat. Uh, this is a big thing here is one of the big mistakes that we that that Wes and I have found with teams that are trying to improve their onboarding is they make this into a six-month project, like literally mm. like six to eight months. I'm like. Are you serious? Like, there's a study with with you know building a tower with spaghetti and marshmallows that this this I think Stanford or Harvard researcher did, and they found that a lot of MBAs were the worst at building this. They found kindergartens did a lot better because they would iterate a lot quicker. So that's that's what I that's what I just talked a little bit about in the last one is to make sure that it's smaller and iterative and a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So going back to that, I think it was the that that second step there. Actually, going back to the first step on sort of getting the right onboarding team. We mentioned you know product people, obviously marketers. Like, who are the other people that should be involved? And also like having a lot of people together. How do you make that function? And you know to like get right. on the same page. Yeah, they, they, I look at four main ones there, and uh, kudos to AppQs. They, they've wrote, written a blog post. I, I, I believe it was Ty Megan who wrote this blog, blog post. I uh, used to be the director of marketing, but it, it's, so we talked about product, we talked about marketing. There's also customer success. If you have a customer success team, they have a lot of input and feedback from users that you, you should be pulling back to the product team. And the last one is sales, actually, surprisingly, because they're really in touch with the needs and where people are getting stuck with with the onboarding. So that's hmm. the first question. So those are probably the key four ones. I mean, I'm sure that you can pull in operations, but what I suggest is anybody who is involved in getting people to experience and adopt, experience, adopt, and really take on the value of a product, then they should be involved in, in that team. And to your second question about like how do you make sure that they work together, I would suggest that there there should be one of the teams who should own it, and though that owner is the one, pretty much the project manager pulling everybody in, 
And what I when I say owning it, I mean like they don't hog it. Like this is my ball. <laughs> don't anybody else touch this. And what we what I found is it really it the the team typically the one the team that owns onboarding in a company is the one that's closest to the customer. So what I found, for example, with with let's say with Sprout Social, it's the customer marketing team that is owning onboarding. It, if, mm. it at a company called Jungle Scout, it's customer success that owns onboarding, and they're running the championing that. And our, with Facebook, it's the growth team, and with Slack, I think it's the product team. So it really depends on who the the team is. But my from experience is usually the one that's closest to the customer because you really need to be as close to the customer to really you know bring them figure out what their value to them is and, and bring them there hmm. going to that second step on understanding our users you mentioned sort of that's the the fundamentals like you have to mm-hmm. understand who your customer is who your user is what they're really trying to achieve i wonder if you can elaborate on like what do you actually what does it mean to really understand your right. users like what are those kind of like points criteria categories of information that you're looking for yeah, I, it goes back to this concept called the jobs to be done and the idea of the customer job where people are hiring products to do a, a job. And an example I bring up is that when you know when you're hungry and you have a raw piece of chicken, I would hire uh, a fryer to make fried chicken because I love it, or I would hire an oven to bake it, and I would maybe hire a barbecue pit to barbecue that chicken. So I'm not just buying it, I'm actually hiring the product itself to do my job. And the the way I push that analogy further is that user onboarding is the job interview to the customer job. Like you're really like you're you're imagine like you're trying to be interviewed for a job. You want to make sure you put your best foot forward and figuring out what job you apply for. So I think figuring out that customer job is really important. So going back to the customer job, uh, I look at three main things. Uh, I think Bob Moesta, he, he has a book called Demand Selling, and this is what he, he talks a little bit about, is that there's three components to a customer job. There's the functional, which we're, we're familiar with. You know, when you when you look at the fryer, the functional job is it fries chicken <laughs> so that you can eat it or you fries <laughs> fries. Yeah. There's the other two that often people miss. There's the emotional component where, you know, when, when after they've achieved that desired outcome, how do you want your user to feel or avoid feeling after they've uh, achieved that? And the last thing is the social component, which is you know when we do stuff, we do it in a social context. An example I bring up is Canva, this design uh, online design tool, one of their ads and really their copy on in their onboarding is really great. They talk about like no design experience. No problem. We'll make you. We'll make your. Bo- we'll make your boss proud of you with your design mm. skills, even though you don't have, like. It's really like pushing that hard. That, like, this is the social job of Canva is to make you feel like your boss and your colleagues are proud of you, and that's the social social component of, of of. I think once they really the reason why you need to figure this out is your change is hard. Like you want to really motivate people, and the best way to motivate them. It's really touch upon like, hey, here's what you're going to achieve. Here's how you're going to feel. And here's how people are going to see you once you've been, quote, in, in our words, fully onboarded. But to them, once you've experienced a new life with our product. And mm. I think that's, that, that's uh, I get excited. <laughs> I get excited about that. If they speak to my emotion and my social and my functional needs, 
then I'm more likely and more motivated to actually do the, the quote-unquote onboarding or to get into your product and actually try it out. Yeah, that's a great framework. I love that. It actually reminds me of like the original Jobs to be Done sort of example with uh, Clayton Christensen and the milkshakes and, mm. uh, you know, basically his colleague was hired to figure out how to improve milkshake sales. So he went in and he sort of, you know, took record of what people were doing within the store and what they were buying and how they were buying and were they taking it to go? Were they eating it there? What kind were they getting? And then he started interviewing them. And, you know, before that they had tried all sorts of things. They made it thicker, thinner. They added certain ingredients removed, you know, they changed the branding and the colors or whatever, like nothing moved the needle. And then he asked them why they were buying the milkshakes. And he found that like a, a big portion of the sales were coming from people who were taking the milkshakes to go for their commute. And so that really like applies to that. I think that emotional jobs to be done mm, of like yeah. people are just bored and they want yeah. something that's <laughs> entertaining and, and sweet. Right. And that's enjoyable. That makes their ride enjoyable. So it isn't really like a social factor. People, people probably don't, it's like the, the opposite. They probably don't want people to know that they take a milkshake <laughs> to go on the way to work. There's really no function. Right. I mean, unless you're talking about like yeah. the function of the cup and the straws, right. or like, you know, uh, you could get all fancy and talk about the engineering from how it you know, gets from the cup to your mouth or whatever. But that emotional one is such mm. a huge driver there. Just to, to add one more sort of context, uh, since you have some great descriptors on the functional and, and the social bits. So going, going to that third step now, the product adoption indicator, you had mentioned how, you know, every company has like this sort of, I feel like a metric isn't really a good word for it. That's probably why you came up with the product adoption indicator as sort of like a, a term and a name for right. it. Everyone has something like that. It's the, you know, invite 10 users or it's the mm. 2000 messages or whatever it is. How do you figure out what that is for your company? Such, yeah, it's such a good question around like figuring that out. It's the way that I, I guess like one of the ways that I found, found this and uh, there's some blog posts that I can refer to, which, you know, I pulled this information from is that you want to look at two uh, segments here. You want to look at the first one is the one, the, the users who has done X number of that, that key product action. And the second segment is the people who have stuck around after X, Y number of days. I, I don't exactly know what that is for you, but you want to look at your retention curve and where your retention curve flattens is that's where you want to figure out like, you know, people are st should stay around this far and then they will normalize. So that's there. And what you want to do is essentially maximize the overlap between those two. So, you know, you, you look at after, let's go back to an example that we're familiar with, like, let's say a calendar app, like SavvyCal, right? So, so you would look at the number of people who book one meetings and 10 days. How many of those people stuck around after 60 days? And then you will look at people who booked two meetings after 10 days. How many people those stuck around? And you want to keep moving up that, that key pro product action until you've seen like a max maximum overlap between these two segments. And then at some point, it starts to get get too, too far apart with each other. So it's just finding that middle ground. Like that's a simple way to figure that out. There's the complicated way <laughs> where you would look at your correlation. And I don't talk about this as much in my book, but I also refer to this blog post by Andrew Chen, where like, he's like, okay, here, like, check this out. If you want to look at like, I forgot, like normalized correlation analysis, we're like, 
I tried mm -hmm. looking it up with, with Excel and like it, it's really, you need to be a data analyst to figure that out. If you have like the data chops or machine learning chops, like then you would use that that way. But like what I found is like, you know, just finding that, that segment where they're overlapping gives you some kind of indication that after they've done X number of key product action or meetings book after this time period, then it looks like our data is showing that they stick around after Y number of days. Yeah. Well, one of the, the questions that comes to mind for me is not, not to play devil's advocate, but that, you know, what, what if, for example, it's a couple of key product actions, maybe it's to take savvy cows as, as an example, maybe it's uh, a meeting booked and a user invited to the team and a, you know, a certain number of meeting types created, we'll just say, for example, and then you also add, you know, within X number of days, can you still do that manually or at that point, do you have to start sort of, you know, trying to break them out individually or does it have to get a little bit more sophisticated with some, you know, data modeling and uh, analysis? Yeah, I can imagine that you could, you can get a more accurate retention model where you figure that out. What, what I, what I suggested in, in the book is that what you want is to also be able to easily communicate this with your team. That's one thing. But second, one of my arguments is that, you, one of the primary goals of user onboarding is to help users build a habit with your product. And my, my argument in the book is that to build a habit, you need to do it multiple times. And it, for me, like I would rather focus on one key product action ver versus multiple ones, and then try to fi figure it out. So are they, the question now is, are they building a habit with this key product action? versus looking at this multiple signals. So to answer your question, yes, you probably can get a, a more accurate retention model, but number one, it'll, it'll get complicated. You're gonna be need de deep in, in spreadsheets and, and data and you probably need to look at that. And second, it might be a little hard to communicate like, oh, you need to do X, Y, Z, like what you want, what, what they found on Facebook, but also what they found in Slack, is this becomes the rallying call of the onboarding team. Like we just need to drive this and based on our data, they're more likely to do this. And you know, like something like 2000 messages or seven friends is a lot easier than three likes, one post, and you know, I'm looking at Facebook and three friends, and then they're more likely to stick around. Right, right, that makes a lot of sense. I really like that too, because I think what a lot of people do is, speaking about going back to that onboarding model kind of question, you know, they, they think, oh, well, I wanna do, uh, I want to have a freemium model or I don't like freemium. I want to do a free trial or I don't want to do a free trial. I just want to, you know, book people one-on-one -on -one and onboard them uh, myself. But if you really looked at the data and you understood how do people successfully get into our app and get onboarded, right. then, then you think, okay, well, like which one of these models are just like best facilitate that thing. And for example, if you're Slack getting to the uh, 2000 messages, maybe a hit or miss if there was like a free trial, but on a, on a freemium model, you're kind of guaranteed to after a certain amount of time, right? Or if mm -hmm. it's Facebook, right? You don't have a freemium or a free trial at all. It's basically just, that's the first step. You have to invite people before you get in. Or mm -hmm. I think they made it mandatory for a while. I'm not sure what it's like today. I haven't signed up for Facebook in a while, <laughs> but all that to say, I, I like how that helps you, helps mm -hmm. guide you in the model that you should choose for 100%. whatever onboarding you want to go for. Yeah, that's totally true. I think you're, you're right. I think what you're, you're, what you pick for your product action usually dictates what your your product-led model will be, whether it's hybrid, free trial, or, or freemium. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, one of the other things I want to go back to on that next step was optimizing the flow. So let's just say that it's working, right? We've now we've figured out something that uh, seems to be working at least, and now we want to improve it. We want to make it. We want to make it even better. Maybe that's where we kind of get to that step where we're okay. We know that it's you know one meeting within seven days, but now maybe you know we want to test if prompting them to invite a user improves things or if it's, you know, if it decreases things or, you know, whatnot, how do you actually go about optimizing the flow? Is that like a exercise of AB testing? Is that an exercise of just kind of intuition and just experimentation? You know, how do you go about that? I think the first thing that I would suggest, and it's super hard for, for product and marketers or people who has worked at a company for a while is signing up for your product. Like it's your first time. <laughs> and the way that I look at this is sign up from the beginning take screenshots of every single one that you have, every single page, every single field. Take note of that in terms of a post-it note that what we usually do is if we're doing a live workshop, it's like write down the page uh, on one post-it note. Every field that they have to fill out is another post-it note. Every, pay, uh, every click button is another post-it note. And essentially now you're auditing the whole, every single step that some, like a, a first time user needs to complete to drive them to that first key product action. And when you look at that, you wanna analyze it. And the way that I, 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 that I described it in the book is there's this test, I call it the nest test. So first is N, you wanna look at the necessity. So every single field and clicks and steps in the board and the onboarding flow, absolutely necessary for a user to experience that first key product action. And if the answer is no, you, you have two options, delete it, <laughs> remove it completely, or delay it after they've experienced the first key product action. Mm. That's a necessity. The second I, I look at is ease. So according to Robert, Robert Caldini's principle of, principle of consistency, when people say yes to something small, they're more likely to say yes to something big. So what you want to do is reorder. Can you reorder your steps so that the easiest things are at the beginning? For a simple example is people are more likely to fill out their first name than they are to fill out their email because first name is easy, right? Right. right. It's a simple example, but like you're thinking about like, is it easier to fill out like a company name versus uh, email? Like I'm not entirely sure, but like look at your steps. Are there steps that you can reorganize so that the, e the easy stuff are, stuff are at the beginning? And an example I can think of that does this really well is Hey, hey. it's an email by Basecamp. They've really taught this out. They've really made sure every single step from the beginning to the end is from easiest to hardest. I, I did a teardown of their, of their uh, onboarding experience. And that's what I found was like, it's from easy to, to hardest. So that's, that's ease. And the very last thing I look at is simplicity. So is there a way to simplify the onboarding, that whole flow? Are, are there steps that you can remove? Or one example I think of is with, with Shopify, where when you, they sign up, they actually ask you to fill out 15 fields. And you're, you're probably telling me around me, 15 fields is crazy lot, but what they've done, first of all, they hide one of the fields. It's only after you say that you're an entrepreneur, do they ask you, Hey, have, have you used other tools? So hmm. by it's called progressive disclosure, they're kind of simplifying what people are seeing. So they're not overloaded. The other thing they did was they split it up into two forms where it's only four fields in the beginning and then 10 fields in the second page. So you, you've already filled out four fields. Like 
according to the principle of consistency, you're more likely to fill out the next 10 fields. So I think just thinking about like, how do you, can you simplify things so that, you know, there are complex stuff in your onboarding that you can't avoid, but can you break it down so people it's easier for them? So yeah, that's the three things I look at. Once you have that, you move unnecessary steps, you've reorganized from easy to hardest and you've simplified it as much as possible. And that's essentially how I look at like, Hey, you've, you've, now you're a closer step to onboarding and you know some of the companies we work with like seven shifts they've removed like 40 percent of the steps in the onboarding where like they really like when you when you when you and your team start asking yourself is this absolutely necessary then you start realizing not really it's just nice to have right and then right. that's uh, they've increased their activation rate incredibly just by removing well obviously 40 percent of the steps are, are now gone at seven shifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how much we sort of cram into pages <laughs> and ads and emails just because we think it's a good idea, but it's not necessarily helpful or a good idea for the end user. And when you actually take a second to do an audit and look and say, Hey, is this actually necessary? And I love that. I mean, it hurts a little bit, it hurts your ego, right? But it's also amazing that you can just, you know, press delete on 40% of your onboarding and the things improve, right? <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good sign. Like it's a, it's never a bad thing. I also love how you have a, a sort of like framework or, you know, acronym or some sort of way to codify every one of these principles and, and tactics. Are there any other like mental models or frameworks or things that you use to understand and improve user onboarding we haven't mentioned so far? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny you say that. I like acronyms. I don't know. It makes me easy to remember. This is this is other thing call, I call the dad test. <laughs> oh, so we got the mom test and the dad test now. Yeah, so actually this is a riff off Rob Fitzpatrick. Funny because he's like helping me put together this book. Like I'm part of his community for writers. And I told him about this and he just started laughing. So the dad test is... <laughs> The that test is like this, you know, people think about friction as a bad thing. And I say, you know, before you remove a step from your onboarding, these are three friction that is actually good for onboarding. Uh, and then I call it the that test. The first one is, does this thing direct users to the key product action? So an example could be, you know, like a product tour. Like that's something sometimes people do need. Like that's people are like, well, why do they need, that's an extra click that people need to do to experience the product experience, but it's directed them to the key product action. So that's actually good kind of friction. The second thing is, does it uh, add to the user's experience? Meaning that does it personalize it? For an example with Canva and a lot of tools does this, and I highly suggest this, is like when people are signing up, ask them what their goal is with your product. Like tell them, are you you trying to, with Canva, they ask you, are you trying to create presentation for your students as a teacher? Are you trying to create ads for your for your campaigns? Are you trying to build like they're asking you what your customer job job is so that they can figure that out? So people will be like, why, why don't we remove this step? It's an extra step, but it really does add to the experience because they customize the emails and also the whole product tour that they have based on the experiences. It suggests templates based on your uh, your response to that. And the last thing is, does it delight users? And what I mean by delight, an example I can think of is with with uh, with Drift. With Drift, it's like when you fill out uh, your name and your company and your brand colors, they actually show on the left side what your in-app, your, your in-app bot will look like 
based on your brand colors. And I've talked to Matt Belodi from, from Drift. He's a product growth there. And they found that that actually gets people excited about Drift. You know, it's really like, oh my goodness, this look, looks so absolutely cool. So some folks will be like, why do you need this stuff? But it, if they're finding through user research and discussion that it's delighting users and, and making them trust you, then I suggest that you leave it on. So. Yeah, I guess that's another model is that test. I love it, man. I, you know, I'm all about frameworks and mental models and acronyms and it makes it easier. It really does make it easier to understand and to, yeah. and to remember a recall sort of later. So that's awesome. Man, anything else before we move on uh, from Onboard? I'm sure we'll probably touch on other stuff later, but is there anything else like any, you know, major piece of the equation that we're missing here before we move on to podcasting? No, I think that that's um, if people are interested in learning more about that, I wrote a whole page around it, and they can download the first chapter at eurekaframework.com. But I'm I'm excited to talk about podcasting. Let's do it, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So onboarding, I mean, that's an amazing part. I love how a lot of marketers. This is what I've, I've noticed is that a lot of marketers are sort of polymaths, you know, we, you could riff on onboarding for an hour and now we're going to talk about podcasting and, you know, I've had all sorts of other interesting ideas and things that you've worked on. But after three and a half years of podcasting, which is a long time, by the way, congrats, growth marketing today. I'm just wondering, like, what have you learned? Maybe we can start here. Like what are the main major lessons and takeaways you've gotten after, you know, such a long time podcasting? Yeah. I mean, I can talk about what I've learned personally about myself. I think one of the things that I've really learned about the, the, the whole podcasting phase, first of all, and it might not be, we were just chatting about this, is how humble and, and humble the people that I look up to is. I think like, you know, people who, I don't know if it's just like, oh man, that, you know, Corey is so high up there, you know, like, or Ren Fishkin and Hidden Shaw and Val Geisler, like April Dunford, like all these people that you look up to and you're like, man, they got to have an ego. But I think one thing that I've learned just talking to these people, they're so, so, so humble. Like they're, they're realizing that though people see them as an expert in that field, they're still pushing themselves. They're still like, how can I push this even further? And we were just talking about you as well. I'm sure, you know, when before this year, I looked at you like last year, I was like, man, Corey is up there, man. He's like, he's the thing. Like, but me just like chatting with you, you're, you're in the same mental space where like, how can, what is next and how can I be better? I think that's like, for me, the biggest thing. And that's, that's like just a big aha moment after talking to 130, 150 marketers is like the best hmm. are are not stuck with what they know and they're always like trying to either try new things or push their their expertise forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. What about like how you even reach those people in the first place? What's been your sort of key to getting good guests on, especially guests that will share with their audience and sort of help you grow the podcast? Yeah, I, I one place, and this is really weird. Like, there's two main ways. The first way is through Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is like a marketer's playground. Like, I tell people, oh, yeah. like, man, like, it's just people, like, in general, and the people that I that I keep in my circle are marketers who are willing to help you. Like, they're, 
I the way that I got April done for it, she tweeted like, "Hey, I'm writing a book." I'd be like, "Can can you be on my podcast?" And she's like, "Sure." <laughs> and then that's it. <laughs> and then I was like, "I was like, what the heck is that?" Is I didn't know it was that easy. And other uh, people, uh, Hidden Shot was the same. Like he was just like, hey, he he says something interesting. And I was like, man, this is such a. I, what I find is like if they're tweeting about something that I've never heard about or it's interesting then I, I just asked him and that's how I got hit and shot as well for for Rand like it was through an introduction I know he's quite busy with with this new startup with Spark Toro so like Caitlin Burgoyne introduced me to him by email so that's another way the third way and it's a little bit of a hack and I, I don't want to call it a hack but it's something that I've tried and it's worked it's like I would go to somebody like a marketer who has a newsletter I would sign up for the newsletter and then I would like start responding. I'd be like, "Hey, I love this. Like, this is this, I'm trying trying this out to in my company or trying this out for my personal life." And then after a few responses, I hey, I mean, I really love this piece that you wrote here. Would you love? I'd love to talk. I'd love to bring you on the show to talk about whatever they just wrote about in that newsletter. And that's how I got a few other guests on on the show is sign up for the newsletter and engage with their content. I love it. Yeah. That's so great. I think actually I had shared it maybe on another podcast or maybe it was here as well, but sort of the, the reason why I asked, I had asked Rand Fishkin going back all the way back to everything's marketing episode one, you know, Hey, like, why did you decide to come on the podcast? And he was like, well, you know, I had like seen your face around and like, weren't you like an early like beta user? And, and like, I had even forgotten about all those things. I'd forgotten that I'd responded to his newsletter. I'd forgotten that I'd, you know, tweeted at him. I forgot that I even like used SparkToro. I was like, you're right. Like he, he should know who I am. And someone the other day asked me over Twitter DMs, like, Hey, how do I get a hold of expert? It actually, it was, it was Heat and Shaw. And, uh, and I was like, you know what? You just gotta like earn trust and like mm. make your face sort of familiar and known. Like there's no like hack or trick or tip. Mm. And, and I told him I wouldn't introduce him because I feel like that would even, you know, sort of break possibly my trust with, mm. with Heaton. Yeah. I told him like, look, just interact with them online and just like provide something valuable, like mm. leave a, a thoughtful comment, tell them you right. like what you're working on or, or respond to your newsletter, right? Things like that really help mm. you get the attention of someone in a genuine and authentic way, uh, rather than just like a, you know, a cold email or even a cold Twitter DM. And so how did you get Hitten to do an AMA? Like, did you just DM him or email him? Like, what was the story behind that? Yeah, me and Heaton had, you know, we'd gotten back and forth uh, a few times. I think we even, I had volunteered for like a product interview for FYI. Right. And we just interacted a few times. And Heaton's also just like a super, super generous mm -hmm. guy. And yes. so I'm kind of like a shoot my shot kind of person. <laughs> and Heaton's kind of just like a yes man. <laughs> and so it's a, <laughs> it's a dangerous combination. But he's been really, really generous to just kind of say yes to all the things that I've asked him to so far. So Heaton, cool. if you're listening, thank you for that. But I think, again, it's, it's because of that. So that trust that you build and really just the, you know, the relationship that you build with someone over time. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's, I think Twitter, people think Twitter is like this, like shout it to the world, you know, with LinkedIn, I feel like you can get more likes easily. I don't, I don't know what's yeah. happening with the algorithm, but Twitter is like this place to build relationships. Like I, this is how we, we connected, right? This is how. I connected with other folks in the spy files team. Like that's, it really market. I've been thinking a lot about this and I want to get your take on it. I'm kind of turning on you that you can't really like, 
you can't really scale building relationship or automate it. Like relationships and, and hmm. building is, it has to be done one-on-one. And people are always thinking about like, how do I scale this? How do I automate this? And like, how do I build my relationship to the peak? <laughs> and I'm like, there, I don't think it's possible to do relation, building relationships at scale. Yeah, exactly. 100%. I, I think, you know, I had written this tweet a while back about like, if I could go back, sort of my theory is that mm. you can replace your income and sort of be like a full-time indie hacker entrepreneur. If you gave yourself 18 months to just work on something completely and give it away completely for free, basically. The thought being like, look, if I just like give, I give, 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 give for a yeah. long, long time. And then one day I'd like turn on the paywall or I, you know, flip the switch, turn on the membership, whatever it is then people have, are already going to be, have received so much valuable stuff that they're mm. going to, one, you're gonna have built an audience, but mm. two, you're gonna have earned their trust. And I think it actually goes the same for a lot of relationships. Yeah. I think like the, the part two of that kind of theory is I would also just go and connect with and make as many friends as I possibly can because the more friends that you have, the more like early adopters, the more promoters you have. The more, like that's a very like yeah. selfish kind of narcissistic right. you know, viewpoint of it. but. In reality, the more like friends that you have, the more tight relationships that you have, the mm. more people are going to be willing to sort of go up above and beyond to, to do something that you need to one day. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you can automate it. I don't know if there's like a, a hack or a trick to it, but maybe the, the hacker trick is to, is to start as early as possible, right? Because you only Agreed. have so much time. Yeah, and I think just just to add to that, it's so important to, to you know, when you're, when you said you kind of, you know, trying to collect as many friends as possible. But I think you, you can't build genuine friendships online when you're just always asking, right? I think that's dangerous. Like, right. so people right. just come to you and they you you can tell right away, like, they're just, they're a taker and they're not like a quote unquote giver. Like they're not, you know, this is this needs to be, uh, you know, friends, they give and take, right? That's essentially what it is. And I think, I think you're right. The only hack is I wish I did this sooner. And I remember you tweeted about this guy, Ar Arav, or something like that. I'm going on a show next week. He's a 13-year-old kid. He started a podcast. Like, what the heck, man? Just reaching mm -hmm. out to folks. Like, you're right. This is something I wish I did earlier. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot earlier. I'm also wondering to, to go back on, on the podcasting uh, a bit. You know, what, what have you felt have been, like, the, the most successful episodes? Like, what makes them the most you know, the, the most highly downloaded or the most widely right. shared, like what are the commonalities between those? Yeah. I mean, the first, my top two episodes are one with April Dunford because I got her right when it launched. <laughs> mm, yeah. Smart. So I got lucky, I, but also, yeah, I really dug into her, her framework, but the second one was this, this framework uh, that Kevin Indig, he's like an, now director of SEO at Shopify. Before that, he was a G2. He shared this framework on how he called it like the secret, like Michael Page tactic they use at, at G2. He's never shared it with anybody before. And and I, I feel bad myself, but I use the word secret in the <laughs> in the title. <laughs> it's a secret SEO tactic, you know, people people use that to get people to click but like he actually did reveal a secret in terms of that so i think it's when when people share like really in-depth episodes like what you're doing it's like it's more than more than 20 minutes or half an hour episodes that those two were like over closer to an hour where like they really go into detail mm. with this people eat that up like they like they're 
some people have 10 minute daily shows like Neil Neil Patel and Eric Sue. They have this daily marketing school podcast where every day they have five, 10 minutes, but people also are craving for like really meaty stuff. And yeah, that's what I, what I, what I found. I'm sure, I'm sure you're finding the same thing with yours or what your best episodes are ones where like the guests go in detail. Yeah. Well, yeah. When the guests go like really, really mm. in detail so far, as of this recording, the most downloaded one is uh, Benji Hyam. And it was, mm. he basically, I mean, it was, uh, again, by far the longest. He basically shared like everything he knows about content marketing and like all the playbooks for his agency. And people have just been kind of blown away about like the level of detail that he's gone into. Really fascinating. I should listen to that. Yeah. I'm going to make a note. Yeah. Yeah. You should go back. That That's a good one. I'm curious. I know we're coming up on, on time, but I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple other things. One, you had this tweet. You said, as an introvert, I despise being pulled into ad hoc brainstorming sessions. I like to chew on ideas and connect those before I present things. I was wondering if you could elaborate on like being an introvert as a marketer and sort of how that affects the way that you work and think. Yeah. Wow. You dug that up. <laughs> that was a good question. Yeah. That was a tweet. I, I don't even remember. I think late last year, fall. Yeah. Yeah. September 24th, 2020. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think the way that I think about it is I think of it as kind of my superpower. I'm not sure about you. Are you an introvert, Corey? I'm kind of curious myself. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely a little bit closer to ambivert, but I'm definitely yeah, like I'm on the, the introvert same. side. The way, the reason why I say it's a superpower is I think often with with a lot of marketing, it's so easy to get caught up with the bells and the whistles and the latest tactic. And I, you know, what I find is people get you know jump at it and like ah, oh, this is mine. Versus for me, I'm. A little bit more reflective like i i have my daily evening routine where i reflect on what went well that day what didn't go well what will i change tomorrow i like i do a lot of reflection which as an introvert like i enjoy time by myself just to think <laughs> is this the right move is this really what i want to do is this is this is this something that will give me that leg up or would help me achieve what whatever life goals i have and that's, that's how I see it as, as a marketer. I think sometimes thinking through things is, is as important as experimenting with things. So when you craft experiments that are well thought out, the, the results typically is better well thought out results than it is that half-baked, like just run with it results. So that's, that's how I think about it as an introvert is that, you know, reflect on things before, during, and after whatever campaign I'm running. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Is there any sort of marketing-related opinion or best practice that you've changed your mind on and you just kind of like flipped and you're like, oh, I think about this differently or I've, I used to think this one way and now I think a completely different way? That's a good question. Do you have an example for you while I think about mine? Yeah, for, for me, I think I used to be all about like data and analytics and um, all about like, you know, the numbers will tell you everything. And now I've kind of, not like, it's not that it's not important, but now like my big thing, the thing I always love is like qualitative research and just seeing what people say yeah. and like survey responses and, you know, customer research transcripts and things, things like that. So there's an example for you. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's somewhat related to that, but like I, you know, my, my background is in, like, I have a bachelor in mathematics. Like my, I studied math. <laughs> 
And I've always thought that, you know, mar- with marketing, like you have to, it has to be measurable. But like I'm seeing things that, you know, Dave, Dave Gerhardt and CMO, I forgot what is what is, but like brand, brand is so important. Like it really does make things a lot easier when people connect with your brand. Like, And when I say brand, it could be a company like, you know, Adidas, or it could be like a personal brand. Like we're talking about building relationships. People can also build a relationship with a, a personal brand like, you know, Corey Haynes or the Ryan Fishkin, but they can also have a personal relationship with Spark Spark Toral or or Swipe Files or product like where they have feelings and emotions about it. And mm-hmm. if you if you if one of the things I've changed just in the last year is that that is us important or maybe maybe sometimes more important because when you when you've nailed that like every, everything else is a uh, slightly easier like from getting them to your list to getting them onboarded to get, getting them to purchase your product when they have an emotional attachment to your brand the metrics will 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 follow like they will be a lot easier to even your facebook ads would have better responses if you're targeting people who are emotionally connected to your brand mhm yeah yeah that's great before we wrap up, I'd love to take a peek at your personal swipe file, as it were, oh. quote unquote, to sort of get a peek into, you know, what are some marketing or onboarding examples or campaigns that you think are really, you know, worthy of saving, maybe kind of like the cream of the crop. Any examples or favorites that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm have i super hype about Canva, like the way they're onboarding, the growth team is like, like, I believe they're somebody just got promoted that we had on the product Club podcast francois bondigal he just got promoted to like head of global growth but man their onboarding is just super on point like if you google right now instagram templates you don't actually have to to sign up to actually complete it so you can download an instagram template design it download it without having to sign up at all so they've really thought about optimizing for that key product action without any sign up so that's hmm. that's one key swipe file I have. Another one that's more probably like hardcore B2B would be Wave Accounting. I really love their growth theme with Vivek. Like I've I've had a chat with him as well. Where the pro that the the way that they're segmenting them from early on and they ask you what your goal is. Is it to send an invoice? Is it to do your payroll? And based on that, they customize your your onboarding emails, your product tours. Everything is customized based on that one single question, which is like, like this is how it should be done. And that's like another company and and Swifile that I, I would have as a you know somebody should you should check it out. They're doing great stuff. I love it. Yeah, those are fantastic examples. Last question for you: When I say everything is marketing. What does that mean for you? What what comes to mind? Oh man, yes. I think everything is marketing. I think when we think about marketing, we think like, well, it's obviously top of the funnel, but marketing is building relationship. And we find it because we said it, it's not possible. Building relationship about scale, right? Your every every step is like a moment for you to connect with a customer, and when you get that whole experience right from the very first uh, touch point all the way to them like coming back over and over again then you got a lifetime customer in your right there like they're really they're really happy they're really delighted and another app comes along another product comes along that's shinier and sexier and newer they're not gonna jump ships because you've built that relationship with 
with that particular person. So I think, yeah, everything is marketing because that's that's what it's all about. It's like connecting with people and making sure that they, it's a win-win. I love it. Ramley, thanks so much for sharing everything today. I'm going to have links to everything in the show notes. Everyone should definitely go check out the Eureka framework and book that's coming out or will already be out possibly by the time that you uh, listen to this, depending on when it is. But I appreciate you coming on and thank you so much. Thanks, Corey. Thanks again to Ramley for coming on the show and being so transparent. Make sure to check out Eureka, Ramley's new book on user onboarding. You don't want to miss it. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today and let him know what you learned. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. Deciding between product-led, sales-led, or a hybrid onboarding approach really depends on factors like your product complexity, average annual contract value, market maturity, buyer preference, the learning curve of your product, and the size of your market as well. Don't just pick one. Choose the model that best aligns with what your customers need. Also, onboarding is a team effort. To deliver an immersive and seamless onboarding experience for new users, your approach needs to be collaborative across functions and different departments. Onboarding can't just be quilted together from work from different teams. It must be holistic. You have to get buy-in from all teams involved in order to create the optimal onboarding experience. And finally, remember to account for the functional, emotional, and social jobs that your users are looking to hire a product or service for. Functional jobs involve specific outcomes the users experience after working with a product. The emotional job is how users feel or what they want to avoid feeling after they've accomplished their desired outcome. And the social job is about status, approval, peer dynamics, and how it affects our relationships with others. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.